Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to sports scientist and PhD student at Liverpool John Moores University, Shane Malone, and sports scientist and member of the Gaelic Sports Research Centre, Shane Mangan. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this is a part two after part one uh, last week with Shane Malone and Shane Mangan. So part one, uh, can I set the scene for the for the for part two? Really, um, it was a altogether it was a nearly an hour and a half chat with these two, with these guys, and it kind of made sense to split it into two into kind of two forty-five minute episodes rather than a um, a big beast of an hour and a half. So this second one, we can just develop on on part one really, which is diving in a little bit deeper on the training load side, of, training load side of things. And I asked these guys, uh, especially specifically Shane Malone, given his research in the area, positives and negatives with regards to the acute chronic. Obviously, taking the um, sports science and the conditioning world by storm. So it's um, it's nice to get Shane's opinion on that, given how deep he's been in it with his with the research side of things so we also go into a little bit of um a little bit of detail with what shane and shane are actually collected and how they're collecting it in terms of rpe uh, gps heart rate uh, and some predictive modeling stuff that shane mangan um gives a little bit of an insight into which is really interesting and ties into an episode uh a couple of weeks ago months ago now probably with uh, Sam Robertson. So really interesting part two. If you haven't checked out part one, pretty check out part one first and then come back uh, and hopefully this will uh, this will all make sense. Your acute chronic basically is a ratio of that. Is it the be all and end all? From my view, we use it to sort of monitor athletes and see how they're both their rolling average and their exponentially, exponentially weighted average is looking. Uh, it's probably more heuristic and it has associations with injury rather than its ability to predict injury. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar, and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com. Uh, I'll follow them on Twitter at Val Performance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results, with some more to come, which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valveperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at Valveperformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Forstex. So big thanks to Forstex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forstex.com but also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com 
forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstec, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So without further ado, over to the part two with Shane Malone and Shane Mangan. How, how open have companies been? This is certainly given my previous associations not a uh, loaded question but how how open of certain of, of all companies been to you guys doing these this due, due diligence on their tech um yeah so i suppose it's been like they're they're generally quite open like if you ask for um liability or validity studies they'll send them to you um but sometimes if you ask for say some of the formulas that they use or some of the access to the raw data that can be difficult um whether that's just something to do with ip whether it's you know they're they, they don't want you looking at it um, i'm not quite sure but yeah generally it's like it, it can be mixed some of them are, are very open and they openly want you to test their liability um, of their units. I think, well. I, think, I think naturally, Rob, most companies want to make sure that their product is the best product on the market. So I think in a, in a broad sense, every company that we've dealt with to date has been very, very open and very keen to understand what we're doing with the GPS. But most of it, to be honest, is just sort of out of our, our, our own intrigue, like to go, okay, well, we're getting these distances off GPS units where, where the coordinates coming from, uh, how much can we have faith in the distance coming off a unit? Like obviously there's within unit differences, there's between unit differences, just between manufacturer differences. Like it's kind of an open kind of rabbit hole really when you think about it. Yeah, like you have to remember that all these measures are coming from satellites that are thousands of kilometers away from a pitch. And yeah. you're judging distances that could be a couple of meters apart. Yet they're being, you know, they're coming, the actual information is coming from thousands of kilometers away, I suppose. So it's just kind of, it's just something that we have a general interest in. I don't think it's not to say that one unit's better than another or one unit is worse than another. It's just, we look at the data we get and we just, just out of intrigue, we see where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Cool. So right at the start, Shane Malone, you mentioned, did, you, did I hear you mention metabolic power? Yeah, uh, that's sort of part of my PhD. So uh, from my sins, I agreed to take it on at the start. Uh, kind of not regretting it now, but it's kind of been something that has kind of intrigued me. And we look at, we're looking to develop kind of a, a Gaelic football-specific metabolic power algorithm. So obviously there's been a lot of discussion on the positives and negatives of metabolic power. I'll leave that to Martin Bouchette and Christian Osniak to have an argument over. But... Uh, yeah, we just literally, we wanted to understand sort of the, the metabolic or I suppose mechanical loading depending on your thought process on where metabolic power slash metabolic mechanical loading comes from. So we've sort of, we've developed this study at the minute where we're looking at the O2 costs uh, during a simulation. Uh, we've treadmill tested uh, a, a numerous cohort of Gaelic footballers and then we're going to put them through a simulation and find out their energetic cost through O2 kinetics and off that uh, 
we're going to try and develop a metabolic power algorithm specific to Gaelic footballers. Obviously, with the known limitations, that's going to be uh, reflective of the cohort that tested. But we've blood markers in there. We've O2 kinetics. Uh, we've heart rate. Uh, we've a simulation that we're quite happy with. So we'll see where it goes. Uh, I used it a bit. So I've a manuscript paper on it uh, in, in Gaelic football. And we sort of found similar to Aussie rules, given the amount of linear running that takes place, that in match play it mightn't sort of be the most ideal metric to look at. We still look at, say, metabolic power entries. Uh, over 20 watts per kilogram. They're called power efforts on, uh, on a specific GPS unit we use. So uh, probably more value in training, I think, because there's more XL, D-cell loading and training and in small-sided games, which is a very popular training methodology in Gaelic football. When it comes to probably linear and lower speed running, it's probably not as valuable and that has been shown in many papers. So it's another metric that we look at we look at many metrics. We don't just look at one. So, yeah, that's sort of part of it. It's part of the PhD. It intrigues me as a metric. Uh, that's pretty much it. Like we use it in bits and bobs. No, that's fine, mate. And I know you, you you talked about the threshold at the higher end of the high speed running, but to kind of build it down a bit, how did you come up with the thresholds, and what are the thresholds that you use um, for the down the scale? Yeah, so we use a, uh, we use, uh, for a high-speed run, we use anything over 17 kilometers an hour. Uh, that, when we batch-tested a group of gated footballers, that was their maximum aerobic speed uh, off a, a 1K time trial. Obviously, it's going to be higher if we use a yo-yo. Uh, then we looked at uh, our sprint-based or sort of our very high-speed running being over 22 kilometers an hour. Uh, we look at a, a zone one or standing and walking at zero to 6.9 kilometers an hour. Uh, jogging, we classify as seven to 12 kilometers an hour. And then cruising is between 12 and 16. So we keep it to five specific zones. Uh, okay, within different units, there might be six. Uh, you might add a zone or two yourself if you're exporting out raw data and look at, say, maximal speed meters or max velocity meters when you sort of you might have your absolutes at one level then you might have say an individualized threshold for sprinting or maximal speed uh running or velocity exposures or whatever you might look at from a loading perspective but our thresholds are very simple at an absolute level 17 22 and we five then that go from zero all the way up to above 22. Sweet so just moving on a little bit to some of the fitness profiling stuff that we've uh, chatted previously about. just want to talk just a little bit about kind of a, obviously going simple, like what is fitness profiling, why are you doing it and what you're doing? Yeah. So I suppose if you look at probably, probably stems back to basic kind of training philosophy 101. So when you have a training session, you create obviously an element of fatigue over time, though, you want to clean out that fatigue and improve your fitness. Uh, unless you test that, you've no idea to say that your training or the training you've done across a specific period has had a dose response. So you might do, say, you might spend 20 minutes a week above 85% of your heart rate max. Does that actually relate to a change in fitness? And unless you test the fitness, you don't actually know if an athlete has improved because as Shane has spoken about previously, there's so many contextual factors that impact both, say, training performance running and also match play running performance. 
So what we do is we aim to test our athletes probably four times a year. Uh, so we'll test them at the start of the preseason, sort of either you can go at the end of the first competition phase or before the start of the league. There is a natural break in the middle of the league that some people use to test or they'll use the end of the league to test. And then you usually get a, a, a final test either probably provincial championship time or beforehand or if you're lucky to win the province you might get a week prior to winning the province and say the all-island quarterfinal or the super eights uh the reason we test obviously is to see excuse me the reason we test is obviously to see if there's been improvements within our test okay there's limitations that you can train the test or you, there's pacing that might take place during a test some of the tests we use i suppose to assess improvements in specific physical qualities. Uh, we use a 5, 10, and 20 meter speed test. Uh, we'll use sort of counter movement jump tests. Uh, we might look at a repeat sprint test, which is a six by 35 meter shuttle. And we'll look at that. We'll look at sort of the, the times across each sprint and the fatigue index. So we'll look at the, the best sprint referenced against the worst divided by uh, the, the general, the, I think it's either the mean, can't remember the equation off the top of my head because I have it built into Excel. But, uh, or we'll look at like a 1K time trial where they just do, uh, they do 21 to 21, which is 100 meters, and they go up and back five times, and we'll just time them, real simple test. Uh, what we have found though is that the tests kind of have a similar profile to match play running demand. So if you look at a yo yo, there'll be again a bell shaped curve with a middle three. We'll do the most running again on a 1K time trial. It's probably a U-shaped curve where the midfielders will run it quicker and the middle three will run it quicker. But what we did was we wanted to understand as well, sort of research that's pending, is was there an association between testing and match play running? Now, I know this is fairly controversial. I got a, I got a slap on the wrist for uh, off Martin Bouchette for chatting to him about it previously because obviously there's specific co-founding factors. But when we looked at yo-yo, uh, running performance, yo-yo too, sorry, and match play running, there was a fairly strong correlation. So it's uh, 0.77 with uh, high speed running. So we know that if you run uh, a better yo-yo too, your players will naturally have or will accumulate more high speed running. And I suppose like the reason we test is to see where our athletes are at and if our programs have had a, an impact on them. And I suppose in the gym then as well, Rob, we'll look at some basic measures. So like when we trap our deadlift, 3RM, uh, bench 3RM, because uh, we've done some research that has shown that they're actually related to improvements in, or sorry, a reduction in injury risk. But like our testing profiles, again, like depending on the team you're waiting, you might get four profiles, depending on the team you're waiting, you might get three profiles. But we'll look at doing that across the year at a fairly, fairly religious level like we want to test our athletes we want to feed back that information to your athletes and also athletes are mad for data like even whether it's gps whether it's uh testing scores if you put them up on a board and you format it to top to bottom they go mad for numbers like and I'm, i know this is pretty obvious but these players aren't going to leave a county and go to another county because they play where they're from so you're going to have the same guy if, they, if they're decent and they've got longevity they're going to stick around where you're born, you play for pretty much, yeah. unless you get a transfer, and that's that's controversial. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't really happen. It's like yeah, transferring from Ireland, England. Um, yeah, but you can't you can't even an international level. But yeah, like I suppose there's 
uh, way you play your club football, or well, basically where you're born is the county you play for. Uh, where you play your club football, then if you want to transfer a club, you transfer across county borders, uh, you potentially can play for that county, but yeah. it's very, one, it's very rare, and two, the person that does it, I wouldn't like to be them. Yeah, I suppose that's the, the, the culture, really, that surrounds teams, and the fact that, you know, you, you, you grow up in a community, you play for that team, um, it's it's probably a bit different to the other sports where um, football is is more sort of played in in urban centres and towns, and uh, rugby would be played mostly sort of by upper class in the upper class areas, really. Whereas for the the country as a whole, really, um, the Gaelic sports are are the main sports. There, um, the attendances at them are the highest. Um, over any sport in the country so say for our national finals to be played in front of crowds of 80,000 um, average attendance is probably about 10,000 at yeah. a match like where you know the the football league in Ireland so football soccer, or soccer yeah. is, is, the, is the highest played sport but the attendances at games is, is very low and um, most people choose the sport teams in England or yeah, yeah, countries yeah Spain or everywhere. Yeah, Gaelic football, you're you're very much a supporter of your county. Like, okay, you might work for another county, but you definitely, as an individual, you always will support your county as much as you can. Mm-hmm. And uh, very, uh, I suppose, parochial as well. Yeah, yeah, very parochial. Like. Yeah. Nice. So again, I'm just going to move back to. Mr. Mangan, um, and talking something that makes me instantly feel completely out of my depth, like I have done many, many times, talking a little bit about this with people, um, and with predictive modeling. Um, just want to talk to us a little bit about kind of where that's maybe come from, where you think it is is going, is heading in that direction? Yeah, I suppose um, we started off with an issue, really. Um, my research uh, was going to be comparing top level teams to lower level teams really for my masters at the start and uh, at the minute or at the time really we didn't have a, a rating system we had no official rating system uh, in Gaelic games where obviously you'd ha- you have it in FIFA you have it in, in rugby tennis golf but uh, we don't have an official one and um, so we went about analyzing different different predictive models and um, the one we went with was actually um it's called a ELO rating system, but it was originally it was made for chess, and uh, it's it's really for competitions or games where there's two people involved, and then you can have other teams around that. But um, it's actually it's used by the the women's uh, women's ver- version of FIFA WFA or whatever they're called. Um, yeah, so they use it anyway. But um, yeah, I looked at I looked at uh, results from 2010 to 2015, and um, built a model off that. It took into account things such as the, the stage of competition, so um, whether it's in the start of the year in the league or wh- whether it's in the championship. So I afforded higher wa- weighting to um, games that were in the championship. Um, looked at sort of things like um, score difference in a match. So if you won by more points in the game then you'd be awarded more points uh, for your victory um, and just looking at things like that um, so we, we built the model anyway tested it out and it had a 73% accuracy at predicting a winner in the match so it was, it was we were happy with that anyway um, 
And moving on from that, then we started to, we, we created a current table of teams at the minute, or at, it was probably towards the end of 2015, uh, started 2016 when we had that. Um, and then we started to, to work back then and look at the fa- other confounding factors and whether they had an influence on how good a team is. So I looked at the likes of population in a county, um, whether that correlated um, looked at things like registered players in a county, so the number of players playing uh, that sport, um, things like uh, team expenses, so how much. So we're lucky enough to get data on the amount that teams uh, invested into their into their teams or counties invested into their teams, and also financial income. So although it's um, it's an amateur sport. Um, Teams, you know, if, if people go to matches, they have to pay in. Uh, teams would be sponsored. Um, then the GEA themselves, the Gaelic Athletic Association, they also fund uh, each of the counties. They give money to them each year. Um, so that actually, that part of it got a, got a lot of press here in the national press in Ireland um, because there, there was one county in particular that received a lot of money um, they received 274 euro per registered player, while uh, the national average was 20 euro or 30 euro per, ter, per registered player. So it was, it was a big gulf in quality. That team were actually quite successful. So that, that got a lot of press here. But the, I suppose the main part of that was that we saw that there was really high correlations between underage success. So at under 18 and under 21 level, um, there was, I think, an oral value of probably 0.8, between 0.8 and 0.9 um, in terms of correlation with the current rating. So pretty much the teams that were successful at underage tended to be a lot more successful at the adult level. And I suppose building on from this then, what we'd like to do is to incorporate some more of our technical performance data into it and also use it as a base to... Um, to plan loads to so say for example if you're going to play a team that's rated 25th out of 34 counties uh, 34 teams then you know that maybe the distances that you run in that game will be lower in that week maybe you can re- reduce or pump in more load into the players that sort of thing so we're just at the early stages of that but uh trying to build on it as it goes on and had it updating the updating the the rating system as each game goes on as well so is is that something that goes on currently with periodizing based on the up and coming opponent, like rating the opponent, like you said, number one to thirty or whatever it is, and building things up if it's a category E game compared to a category A or whatever it is? Yeah, like depending on I suppose uh the SNC you have at a particular team, they might buy into it. So there has been cases where teams have carried uh residual low or residual fatigue into games uh, based on their own assumption that they will win that game. Uh, there's particular teams that have trained through matches, so that means that they'll they'll carry their typical non-game training load week into a game week. So they will just train away as normal and they'll play their game so they won't reduce load for uh, starting 15 players or any of the bench-based players. They will just train them away as they would if there was no game and... Uh, just depends on the team you're with. I suppose the more successful teams within Gaelic football, there's kind of, say, probably five or five teams, maybe six teams that are kind of at a probably a, an upper level versus uh, other teams that uh, compete at inter county level. And they, 
they will pick specific games and train through specific games. Uh, that has happened with teams that I've been with previously. We've trained through games uh, within the league and even some of the championship games. It really depends on your confidence in your team, but the ELO ranking can be a, uh, a supplement to that where we can use the previous results and all the other data that we're collecting, uh, merge it with the ELO ranking, get a rating, and see if that fits with the potential to either load or deload our athletes. But that's something more controversial, I suppose, and something that we're thinking about doing. But in practice, without the ELO ranking there, it definitely has been the case where teams have trained through specific games. Mm -hmm. With success? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Definitely, yeah. There's, there's, a, there's one or two teams that I know train through games, uh, not on a regular basis, but have targeted specific games that they've trained through and they've won quite comfortably those games. Mm -hmm. They are top tier teams, shall we say, that can afford to because they have a lot of players that are at a higher skill level. It's probably harsh, but yeah. a higher skill level than the teams they're playing. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Shane and Shane. So in part two, a little bit more the acute about the acute chronic, especially focused on Shane Malone, given his um, his experience in the area. Then looking at small sided games and uh, training load in regards to um, in regards to small sided games and manipulation of that that area and its um, its increasing popularity. So just before we get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box can be found online at blkboxfitness.com and on Twitter at blkboxfitness. And Black Box Fitness are a gym manufacturer who are based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And they are they manufacture their equipment there, which for me is a, is a big thing, and distribute that uh, all over the all over Europe, um, into Australia, into North America. It's doing some really good stuff. Uh, really impressed with the with the quality of their kit and the service they provide uh, through Greg, who is the uh, who is the, the main man down there. So I'd encourage you if you are interested in a. Uh, any extra gym equipment or a full gym fit out to get in touch with the guys at, at, at Black Box Fitness. Um, certainly come highly recommended from uh, from me, from what I've seen and, and their customers. So blkboxfitness.com and on Twitter at blkboxfitness. So over to part two with Shane and Shane. Hope you enjoy. So one thing that obviously you're very familiar with uh, and something that I... Uh, chatted to Aaron Coots about very recently was and has come up in countless podcasts that I've done um, over the last couple of years is the acute chronic ratio and obviously the recent uh, papers that have come out um, from the guys at Teesside do you just want to give us your take on it and a bit, a bit, bit of a journey where you started with it and kind of where it's come to and where it's potentially going to go yeah, so I suppose, obviously, I think I don't think I need to introduce the acute chronic. Uh, I think most people know it. Tim Tim Gabet has uh, popularized it quite substantially. So it's basically, it comes from your banister, old school banister model of uh, fitness minus fatigue uh, equals performance, I suppose. It's a very simplistic view on things, but that's sort of where the, the model stems from. So performance, sorry, is fitness minus fatigue. So your acute chronic basically is a ratio of that per se. Um, 
is it the be all and end all from my view we use it to sort of monitor athletes and see how their both their rolling average and their exponentially exponentially weighted average is looking uh, it's probably more heuristic and it has associations with injury rather than its ability to predict injury i think that's sort of the part in my opinion that's been kind of latched onto and sort of that oh, one measure can predict injury i don't think really Personally, there's too many factors going on with an athlete from his home life to his work life to his training performance to the video analysis he might have to do to say that one ratio that is based on one metric or a average of three rolling averages to give, like say, a running acute chronic can openly predict injury. But what it definitely is, is it's, it's a good guide that coaches understand really easy. So what we're doing is we're referencing what we've done this week against our average of the last four or referencing today versus, or referencing, sorry, the previous seven days versus the last 28 days. And like, it's, it's a very simplistic measure. And I think that's why it's, I think it will definitely continue to be, be to be used. Uh, the argument for me is statistical perfection minus, uh, versus practical realities. So I fully understand that there's flaws to integrated ratios, whether that is uh, an acute or a chronic or whether that's uh, an internal and external. But if there is a consistent trend for the ratio to be associated with injury, it's not going to predict it, but I'd rather have that association in my back pocket to go to a physio or go to a coach and go, yeah, we're spiking on acute chronic care today. Maybe we need to maybe look at uh, a player's pre-training scores here and see how he, she is feeling or, okay, the goal for this week is to have a sub-maximal spike in load or have a 1.2 on our acute chronic because we know that you can sub-maximally spike athletes. You're going to have to, to improve fitness, but Again, I'd rather have it there as an option for me, Rob, than not have it. And I think it's here to stay. I think it will still get the academic scrutiny that it probably deserves as a metric. So I think there is probably other research to come out that say that it doesn't predict injury. I think most people who use it on a day-to-day basis will openly admit it doesn't. But I think they're going to want that association with injury risk in their back pocket to chat the coaches and have those conversations than not have it. So why is the why is the innate uh, problems with ratios like you say internal external acute chronic? What are the um, yeah what are the what are the issues? Just get into the intricacies a little bit. Two different well, if you're internal external, it's two different constructs of load uh, that you're sort of like as well. If you look at say some of the internal measures that uh, you might correlate against, uh, there's an association already there because. You're referencing internal heart rate against, say, uh, an internal blood marker, so on and so forth. Some of the criticisms that have been shed my way for some of the internal ratios. But again, I go back to statistical perfection minus or versus, say, practical realities. So with these ratios, if they're associated with something, if they're associated with a change in fitness, if they're associated with an injury risk, I'd rather have that in my toolbox for planning training sessions and monitoring training sessions than having nothing at all. Now, I know we can go back and look at, say, like weekly loading or time above X heart rate or uh, just the, the, say, an individualized training impulse or a DRP by itself. 
But ultimately, you're going to be looking at, say, percentages, which, again, is another ratio. So there's flaws with, say, percentage weekly change, all that stuff. If you delve in deep into the statistics of every ratio you use, whether it's a percentage or an integrated ratio, there's statistical flaws with it from my basic reading of them. But again, we're just we're trying to provide different measures so we can manage players, manage super compensation, keep our athletes injury free, and basically keep our players on the pitch. So an acute chronic ratio or an internal external ratio is something that I think they'll be here to stay. It's probably up to smarter minds than me to come up with the perf- the perfect ratio. Mm-hmm. But we know that these ratios are linked to changes of fitness, linked to injury risk. Like there's many research papers that have shown that. So. I think I'd rather have the association with me than not. Mm-hmm. So who are the guys out there who are taking this taking this forward in terms of the research side of things? Uh, integrated training loan ratios, obviously if you're looking at, say, objective, internal, and then external, you're looking at guys like Ibrahim Akubat, uh, Joe Sanders, uh, Rich Taylor, we've stuff coming out and hurling on it. Uh, Chase Delaney's done some stuff on uh, the training efficiency index. Uh, then if you're looking at acute chronics, uh, you've got Aaron, obviously, Couts, who's done some good work recently in that group on its associative powers, but not its predictive powers. I think Tim will have a bit of a say still, Tim Gubet, on acute chronics and their association with risk or other physical qualities and acute chronics and the protective effect that they might have. Uh, hopefully, we can do some additional work on it in terms of acute chronics and risk. Uh, but yeah, like I think. It's open to many PhD students to bring the field on. I don't think anyone's going to begrudge them in terms of progressing the field, whether that's in a positive way or to the detriment of a specific metric. Mm-hmm. Nice. So one thing you talked about a little bit earlier on, and I'll point this back at um, back at Mr. Mangan again, um, with with regards to small-sided games. So is that is that that's obviously a big part of the the training uh, in Gaelic in Gaelic football? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's. It's. I suppose for for us and for the coaches, it, it's an easy buy-in for the players. Um, you can get your, um, you can get your match demands or relative match demands from small-sided games. Um, Shane has done a, a lot of work on small-sided games. I'm just moving into that area now at the minute with my PhD. So I'm sort of trying to, um, trying to assess. I suppose the the. F- both the or the tree of the physical, physiological, and the technical demands of small-sided games. So, you know, if if we play a game on a larger pitch, um, we might get the physical demands, or we might go over the physical demands of a match. But are we getting the technical demands? And um, so it's just sort of trying to to find that sweet spot, I suppose, with that research, and then move towards, I suppose, a, a tactical periodization um, model. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's like if suppose if you look at small sort of games, suppose in their nature, they're naturally sort of open open loop drills, or there's a lot of things that go on in the drills. So like you can manipulate your demands. A small sort of game is really easy, Rob. So like you look at like say you can change your pitch dimensions. You can go from say a forty by twenty four v four to an eighty by twenty four v four. They're going to have more relative area to work with. Therefore, they're going to increase their running demands. You can manipulate the player number. Uh, we've done stuff where we've manipulated the number of bouts. So obviously after a third bout of small-sided games, you usually get like a, a drop-off in high-speed running and uh, sort of a, a increase in sort of internal responses, just 
we think it's due to both pacing and maybe a little bit of fatigue. Uh, you can manipulate the game design as well. So like whether you put a condition on it for goals only, that will impact it. Whether the game is competitive, a competitive small sort of game with a scoreline, or whether it's not, that will impact the running and the internal demands. Also, whether we look at, say, like uh, a man-marking small side of game versus a non-man-marking small side of game. But small side of games are probably only one part of the training tool. Like we've seen, or Shane has seen recently with some simple kick-passing skill drills that these can, like if you kick-pass from sideline to sideline with a bit of a run off a shoulder, you can get sort of match play demands. And I suppose that's sort of the thing. You, you don't just monitor the whole training session. You monitor each specific component of the training session. And small sort of games are one part. Like we've also other things like we look at say tempo running, and we might look at maximum aerobic speed running or repeat sprint running. Like there's many ways we can get fitness into our, our athletes. But I suppose if you think about it, small sort of games kind of that well-rounded approach where you're getting game-specific fitness into your players. And I suppose that's where Shane's PhD is going to go. We're going to develop hopefully a tactical periodization model. Uh, for Gaelic football, but it's going to take a bit of time, obviously, to understand different subcomponents of a training philosophy within a within a team. Yeah, the the key key thing really is that don't do small sided games just for the sake of it. If you can adjust them and change the rules around so it'll it'll suit your style of play. If it suits your style of play, then um, you know the players will buy into it more. They'll improve on the pitch, hopefully, as well. But um, once you're once you're hitting those things like Shane would have done stuff in hurling before, yeah. uh, looking at different pitch sizes. So maybe yeah, so like that. I suppose if you think, depending on the size of the pitch and the player numbers, you can, as I said previously, you can increase the relative player area, which basically allows players to open up and accumulate more meters, accumulate uh, higher internal demands. So if you look at say like a a forty by twenty four v four. You're roughly going to get about 73% of your match play demands in that that sort of small pitch dimension if you run that for four minutes. If you run a four-minute 80 by 20, which is a really large pitch on a 4v4, if your players can survive four minutes, which they won't, <laughs> you get roughly about 1.5 times your match play demands. But like this, this is sort of well-known, not I wouldn't say well-known, but it's kind of small side of games and their ability to train match play demands is known across sports. Like if you look at Matthew Lacombe's work at PSG, he's looked at rolling uh, minute averages for different pitch sizes. And okay, it doesn't meet running-based high-intensity interval training, but what it does do is it hits above match play demands depending on your position. So yeah, like different small side of games formats can get you uh, different both external and internal uh, responses but I suppose it's knowing where they fit within a, a periodized model or a planned model which is sort of where Shane's going to take it like I've I've tended to do more to the descriptive end of things like what the games do and then pass it on to someone else who tends to look at probably the, the context or how we plan it like we've seen like I've an abstract in at ECSS where we've looked at a four week block of small sided games and different pitch dimensions where we've just gone like small for a week and a half, medium for a week and a half and large medium then for the last week or for the, the last part of the training block. And we've sort of increased the total time in small sided games. We found that you get improvements in fitness, like you can increase your, your yo-yo score or you say you can increase your yo-yo one score uh, by 200 meters. You can, you can improve 
uh, your repeat sprint ability within that block. So small set of games work and you can use them as, I suppose, a fitness component within uh, Gaelic football and hurling. But I suppose we need to be conscious of kind of the Axel, D-cell loading that comes with small side games and that if we keep Axelling and deselling over a period of time, you can run into sort of chronic sort of overuse type injuries as well. So it's about it's about having probably a balance between small side games, uh, conditioning running and sort of skill-based, close-based drills yeah. and then tactical sort of, your tactical walkthroughs. Do you think the popularity of, of small-sided games over especially recent years has helped with the integration with the technical staff that that bridge has been bridged a little bit a little yeah, bit better with that you see in the coaching courses now that you actually they run here I've, I've done one recently um, I've done one a couple of years ago um, the course content has been upgraded a huge amount it's it's pretty much all focused towards game based uh, game based training small sided games so the coaches are getting that they're getting you know some of the snippets from the research as well from that the you know the traditional traditional form of training I suppose would have been to run laps um, so run, yeah it's run a, long run hard run long run hard so it's, it's an easy coaches then as well if they are running small sided games like you know if you're if you're training kids they're just gonna ask you to try the whole game or when are we playing a game um so yeah like if you can get can get the small sided games in same with adults yeah, even, same, yeah. same with adults yeah. just big kids if just big kids <laughs> yeah so if you can get if you can get the games in early not just have to wait till the end of the training session um that that will keep the players happy too and i think people kind of they hear the word small sided and some conditioning coaches panic but because they want it, they know that, okay, we're going to play this on small pitch dimensions. But like, you just have sided games or conditioned games where it's just, it could be an 8v8 on a sort of a, a quarter, half pitch. Like, there they're going to get a lot of high speed running. They're going to get a lot of speed exposures. Like, I've seen within some of the analysis I've done where we've looked at small sided games and they've gotten sp- good speed exposures. So they've gotten up to max speed maybe once or twice within a four minute period or they've they've hit one speed exposure and they've got maybe five or ten meters of max speed running uh, but most of it is in larger pitch dimensions like you are going you're not going to get good speed exposures in every small sided game you do but it's about understanding that you can manipulate these really whatever way you want like you're limited by your imagination but again you don't just do small sided games for the sake of doing small sided games you do them as part of a plan process where we're doing them we might move in then to a a technical component we might move into a, a tactical component and come back to a small side of game to train a particular part of that cool so I'm just conscious of, of time again and I've kept you for a, a long time uh, too so just a bit of a roundup will be superb and where people can firstly get uh, get hold of the, the work that's uh, that's currently out there from, from you both um, where future work will be available and where people can either email you or contact you on social media yeah i'll go first this was um best place to get me is probably twitter um my name on twitter is shane underscore mangan m-a-n-g-a-n um in terms of our research both our research pretty much all the papers are on ResearchGate. so shane mangan or shane malone on research gate um or just, yes, email, just, email, or just us. email us yeah our emails are attached at the end of most of the papers I suppose one of the I suppose probably the paper that I get requested most is sort of the max speed exposure paper but 
like again feel free to contact me shane shane malone zero one on twitter email me at shane.malone at my mail was it my mail that itc dublin that's something else yeah maybe you might put it on you you might drop that I think that's probably the best way. That's like, the longest yeah, email like, I've ever heard, by the way. <laughs> I'd blame the college. But uh, yeah, like I suppose future research, I'm probably going to delve more down the the training load element of things. So looking at kind of uh, physical qualities, how they can protect or uh, increase their injury risk. I'll look at, I'm going to keep going down the integrated ratio uh, field, even though I'm probably going to get destroyed for it and slapped on the wrist a couple of times but I just think that the, the ratios are interesting I'm intrigued by them so I'm going to keep looking at them uh, I want to delve more into the speed exposures elements sort of how they're trained uh, what components of training we can get them in and I then I think we're going to probably I'd say we'll probably join up on the, the tactical periodization element of things because we're both in, interested as to where we can maximise sort of training within a, a Gaelic football week because a week is only seven days and these boys train nearly five or six of them. So we need to get as m- much into them as we can, knowing the fact that we probably only have 90 minutes to two hours with them on a pitch every day. So you've 10 hours a week if you're lucky. Cool. Excellent. Look forward to it, mate. Well, I'll put all the... Um... I'll put all the links on the site and obviously on uh, on social media when the when the episodes go out. Um, but <clears throat> really, really appreciate you both taking the time to have a chat and uh, and sticking with me for, uh, for well over an hour. So that's fantastic. So really appreciate it, mate. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Cheers for having us, Rob. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to episode 181 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So big thanks to Shane and Shane for giving their time to speak to me for an hour and a half over part one and part two. So if you haven't listened to part two, definitely check it out. This will probably make a little bit more sense if you do. And that is in episode 180. Uh, Massive thanks to Val Performance, Force Dex and Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. And obviously massive thanks to you for tuning in and uh, getting this far down the line. So a really good guest coming up over the next couple of weeks as always, some returning, some new. But if you do want to keep up to date with what's going on the podcast, please press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and you'll get an automatic download of the podcast every Thursday, UK time. So thanks again for tuning in and I will chat to you in episode 182. <laughs>